Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Next Level. I'm JVL here with my best friends, Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller of The Bulwark. Happy Take Day. Happy mm -hmm. Post-Election Day. Take Day for all who celebrate. Uh, we are here to over-interpret a bunch of races that were decided by a hand. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> that, that's not what we're going to do. I myself, it's funny, I in my locality, I had a couple friends who were running for office, and so I was eagerly refreshing the, the thing. And these are races which people had devoted like four months of their lives to in order to get 350 votes. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> and 350 votes to win, like to win their little, you know, city council thing. And I just thought, at that level, if you just knew who the voters are, you could literally just like have them all over for dinner to talk to them. That, that's Big all. Big barbecue. Just do a single big barbecue. Anyway, democracy. Isn't democracy great? It, it is, is great. So, so, you know, I'm back on Pacific time. So if I'm mm -hmm. feeling a little punchy this morning, I'm in Las Vegas. I was with Steve Bannon and Carrie Lake last night. The, showtime, the circus is over. The circus, they Showtime canceled it in their, in their great wisdom. So watch me on Sunday. It'll be the last one. Hopefully, if, if we have any streamer executives here, it does seem like kind of a silly time to cancel a show, given that it's like the most important election <laughs> since the Civil War is happening next year. But just me, I don't know. I don't. I don't see the P and L sheets. But uh, so anyway, something to something to mention to the suits if you're if you work at a streamer. But I'm here in Las Vegas, and while you have my boring hotel room, I get to listen to your t overinterpreted takes while I stare out at the Luxor and the MGM. It's a beautiful. Are you at the north end of the strip? strip? Sarah, yes, yeah, Sarah's got to be jealous right now. Well, yeah, I am jealous, but you're at the, the Luxor. Luxor. Yeah, no, are you at the Mandalay Bay? The Sphinx is right there. Can we see it? Can we see it out the window? Which which place are you in? I'm none of your business. Oh, it's the Monte Carlo, isn't it? None I'm so business. sorry. Okay, I don't. I'm, I don't want. So anybody, sorry. I don't want any fans or haters gathering in the lobby. <laughs> so, are none of you going to say anything about this? I put. I, I'm wearing a prop just for purposes of this show. I'm wearing a red vest. <laughs> Glenn Youngkin, R.I.P. Yeah, it doesn't look like a Youngkin red vest. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's but not. But I didn't red notice. Vest. It just looks like you're dressed normally. <laughs> okay. And donors, all Republican donors across the country were the big losers last night because their fantasy candidate, the guy they went to the vest summit with, wasn't was that what it was called like three weeks ago? Yeah, the red vest ago? summit. The red vest summit with to plot their glory, how he was gonna he's gonna jump in late having turned Virginia red, and he was going to challenge that bad orange man who keeps saying all the mean things, and oh, wah, wah. Yeah, I mean, look, Glenn Youngkin was never going to be the savior. He was never going to run. Right. The Red Vest Summits are about Glenn Youngkin. It's just like, what's up with St. Larry right now? You know, people love being asked by rich donors to run for president. They cannot resist that. Glenn Youngkin and is rich, too. This is what I don't understand. Like, no, bro, you're already very rich. You need to be with people who are extra super rich. No, it's not about their richness. It's about they seem like serious people who are telling him, like, you're the one. You're our great hope for the country. Look at and your I just, floppy hair, Glenn. You're not the one. I just think that's intoxicating for these guys. And, you know, he wants to keep that fantasy alive. Uh, but it died last night. I'm not sure if it if his 2028 ambitions died with it. I think that's an overread on it. But I do think he like went pretty hard. He like state territory on winning Absolutely. this and on having a winning message on abortion, the fifth to 15 week with the exceptions. And to have it get rejected, you know, just disrupts his narrative by quite a lot. Yeah, I never really understood that strategically, actually. Like, why were you staking 
your political career explicitly. It wasn't. It would be one thing if it was like an implicit thing. I want to see how this turns out, you know, and then I might decide what to do with myself. But like, you're going to Politico and on the Sunday shows, and you're like, I'm going to decide what happens after a state senate race in Henrico County. It's like, who cares? I mean, who cares about state senate races in Henrico County except for the people of the Commonwealth of Virginia? This ended up being a big difference because, you know, Glenn Youngkin now can't do anything. Part of the reason why Glenn Youngkin's popular in Virginia is because he doesn't do anything, right? He has a democratic legislature, and so it's hard to become unpopular if you're not passing, you know, the far-right cultural bills that he wanted to pass. So I never really understood why he he was staking his political fate on on random state delegate races in an off-year election. So I thought that was strategically dumb. But he was, and it was very explicit. So when I was with Bannon yesterday... This is not going to make the cut of the show. So this is kind of funny behind the scenes things. Bannon like didn't exactly say he was rooting for the Democrats in Virginia, but like pretty much said it. Uh, you know, he was just like, if Youngkin has a good night tonight, that's going to be bad for MAGA, right? Because the counter force within the party will have some momentum and will have some vigor and and maybe you know there'll be a fusion type candidate. Maybe Youngkin can be that candidate. I, you know. Like Sarah, I'm pretty skeptical that Youngkin really was ever capable of being a MAGA normie fusion candidate because he's just, he leans too far in the normie direction, like just by the way he looks. But um, anyway, I, I did think it was interesting that that Bannon was at least, you know, you never know, he's full of shit. So like, but but at, at least he was paying lip service to the notion that, that last night was meaningful in kind of this intra-party conflict and that it was a big L for Youngkin. Yeah, because look, this is, uh, you know, when these Republicans, right, they have a bad night, Bannon and Trump can turn around and be like, Trump's not on the ticket. And as long as Trump's not on the ticket, it's just like you can't win without him. And frankly, I've had a lot of emails this morning with people being like, what does it mean for 2024? And I'm like, disaggregate, disaggregate this from 2024, because right now everybody wants to make it about the poll this weekend and then how this is a repudiation. Which we're going to talk about. Stay, oh, stay tuned for the rest of the show. Okay. No, 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 no. Okay. I'm just, I'm not staying for, for listeners. We're going to get to that poll. So continue, Ms. Era. Well, I don't want to step on our, our path here. I just think that the people who are saying that it's different when Trump's on the ballot are correct. Like, that is just the dynamic of right now is very different from what the dynamic of 2024 will be. And I don't think you can extrapolate that much. I think what you can extrapolate from it is that Glenn Youngkin was ran at a perfect time where suburban normies were pissed off about COVID closures, especially around schools and inflation, which he focused on. And that's why he won. He won at a very particular moment. People are down on Biden, whatever. And he had the right issue. And a weak opponent. Yeah. And a weak opponent. And then because he had presidential ambitions, he started to sound a little less normie. He still looked normie, but he sounded a little less normie. He ran on the abortion thing, which is clearly toxic for Republicans. And like he misread Everything like he sort of squandered the one real narrative advantage he has, which is like, I'm a Republican who can win in a blue state. And he sort of did the same thing that DeSantis did. Like they have this narrative where it's like, well, I'm a Republican who can win. I'm a fusion candidate. And then they feel pulled to MAGA and to the base because they're all in their ear once they went and then they lose the normies and it's all over. Can I read something to you guys? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to read something to you. I'm not going to tell you who it is first. I'm just going to read it. We can discuss it. And then then I'll tell you who it is. Rich Lowry. Ross Douthat. The reality is that the GOP as a national party is dead. 
It is now a conglomeration of several regional parties. In parts of the country, Republicans must run wrapped in the MAGA label as Donald Trump candidates. In other parts of the country, they must run as far from Trump as possible. That renders the GOP a, a regional party of divergent views that must then assemble a coalition of disparate and often incompatible values. For all the polling that shows Joe Biden doing a terrible job and people not liking Biden, the GOP might just be too divided to win nationally at this point. In fact, Joe Biden is hugely unpopular, and that should spell doom for his party, but that is not happening in the actual elections. I am curious. Eric Erickson. Eric Erickson. It was Eric Erickson. It was good. I, I, I yeah. saw that last night. Were you cheating? No, I saw no, that. Are you cheating, we, Sarah? We're on Twitter, <laughs> JPL. We're on Twitter. We see what he says. That's my buddy, Eric Erickson, who, whose stuff I read constantly. I think it's a little overstated, but um, but I think that the, directionally it's right. And um, I think this is particularly true in off-year elections, and this relates exactly to what Sarah was just saying about Trump. Trump being on the ballot doesn't help Republicans necessarily because he's, whatever, popular, uh, more popular than some other candidates, but it helps solve this problem that you're talking about. Right? Like, if you have an election where Trump is on the ballot, and then you know you also have whatever, Dave McCormick on the ballot in Philly, in Pennsylvania, you, you know, Dave you might be able to get the Trump right. voters because they turned out to vote for Trump. And maybe Trump doesn't get all the Dave voters, right? But but it, but it kind of helps the party. It lifts the votes, right? And, and in these off-year elections, you know, the Trump people aren't turning out for Dave, right? And, and, and a lot of the normies are actually not turning out for Dave because they because the, these candidates, I'm just using Dave as a generic candidate. He wasn't on the ballot last night because these candidates are like trying to appeal to the Trump voters by being overly animated about these MAGA issues and, it, and you end up in the sour spot, right? That, that Sarah's talking about, DeSantis and, and, and Young King got in, where you're turning off the people you are appealing to in you know, just your generic suburban swing voter types, and you're not actually motivating all, maybe some of the Trump voters, but not all of them are turning out. And so I, I think you saw this last night. And, and the, the other side of this coin, and me and Bill talked about this a lot last night on YouTube, which you should go check out if you're not monitoring our YouTube feed. Um, but the inverse of this coin is the Democrats now have a really good off-year coalition because they've added into their posse a bunch of suburban moms and dads Us. who are conscientious <laughs> and who vote and who Board do mail ballots and who care you know what i mean and yeah. so 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 I, I do i think eric's point is definitely right about off your elections i'm not quite i think it's a little overstated for presidential elections so but but doesn't trump solve that problem to a large degree I mean, this is i have been ringing this bell for a long time that i actually think it turns out that trump is very important for the republican party Terrible for the Republican Party. Maybe Trump himself can't. But Trump is actually better for down ballot Republicans when he is on the ticket, because at the top of the ticket, he brings out his voters. His voters will then just vote for whoever is underneath him. And the normie R's might vote for Biden at the top, but they will still vote for, for Dave McCormick. And having somebody like Ron DeSantis at the top of the ticket might not do that for, for them. Having Nikki Haley might not do that for them. Now, there are other ways they can win, right? Nikki. I think Nikki and Ron are different in this regard, but. Totally are, but not in regards to the MAGA voters, right? So if Nikki Haley were to be the Republican nominee, which she isn't going to be, right. she would have to win in a different way, right? She has to win by actually winning a whole bunch of those, those middle voters to make up for the, the MAGAs who don't show up for her. Sort of, but also let me just say that the big difference is, is that Trump is turnout fuel on both sides, right? So Trump is turnout fuel for the Republicans who love him, who don't turn out any other time. But he's also, he takes a bunch of people who are really 
not that into Biden, right? There's not a pro-Biden coalition that can anyway rival an anti-Trump coalition, right? So he turns out all the people who really hate him. And so the if Nikki's on, what happens is, is the lack of enthusiasm for Biden suddenly becomes a really big problem because they don't hate Nikki enough to turn out against her. Not because of the ballot number, but I just wish for political science purposes we could run Trump 2024 and Nikki 2024 to see what the total vote count number would be. I'd be totally. fascinated at what down. the drop-off would be. Right. Oh, way, way I mean, down. by like, by like 20 million. But yeah. right. Which would be fantastic for America. That would be a sign of health. I yeah. agree. It would be a sign voting. of health. Yeah. It would be a sign of health. Democracy. Yeah. This is a myth, this idea that when turnout is high, that it means democracy is healthy. Totally I agree. remember, I tell this story all the time. Totally I was in the Czech agree. Republic one time, and a and a senator there said to me from the Czech Republic, she's like, I knew we had really entrenched democracy when the number of people voting went down because it meant people didn't think things were on fire and they could check out of politics. That is actually healthier politics. People were like, we need everybody to vote. Not true. <laughs> That's always one of my big rants with liberal donors and liberal activist types who are always like, more voting, more voting, more registration. I was like, do you know the demographic with the largest number of non-voters? Non-college white people. <laughs> are, are we are we sure? Are we sure we want every single non, every single person to vote? Because the biggest demographic, I just, I don't know. The non-voting, non-college white people are the demo that you're looking for. Just I want that everybody to have access. Everybody should have access to but I don't want everybody to feel so freaked out that they feel like they, yeah. Everybody ought to feel like if they, if they just skip an election, like the fate of the world is not on the line. Right. That's right. Like, and like they can vote in the next election and the next election will be the same kind of choice between the two uniparty candidates and everything will be fine. Um, (laughs) Kentucky, Andy, Andy Bashir, uh, did Andy, as you just did a focus group with them, right? Sarah and lots of people talking about Andy, Andy, Andy. I'm not saying the shirt. I'm just saying if you listen to the focus group pod, it's all right there. Okay. Absolutely. It, it is. It is. It is the these these Bashir Trump voters. Okay. These are people who voted for Trump. They called him Andy. They liked him. They talked about how responsive he was. There's one guy in there talking about how they don't see eye to eye on the issue of life, but he still likes Andy because Andy's a good guy with good values, uh, and he can overlook that one thing. I mean. This is why Andy Bashir just won by five points, and I wish that I could like bottle it and force feed it to the rest of the Democratic Party. So one of the points Bill made with with Tim last night is that there, you know, we, we talk all the time about asymmetries between the two parties. Where you have like Larry Hogan succeeding in a blue state, you also have the Republicans in Maryland trying to ride him out on a rail because they hate him so much. Yeah. You do not see like AOC coming down to barnstorm against Andy Bashir because he's not progressive enough in Kentucky, right? I mean, the Democrat, and that used to be a problem in the Democrats. Actually, during the, the W years, this was a big thing, like going around trying, there were, there were a bunch of Democrats who wanted to get rid of John Tester back in the day because he wasn't, you know, and, and the Democratic Party basically came around to, no, actually, we're going to have to run candidates who kind of look like their electorates in their places. And the Republicans have then switched places with them on that. Republicans now have like purity tests that they're running everywhere, wanting to primary people. Yeah, I mean, I wish both parties would learn a little bit more about this. Frankly, it'd be better for the bulwark crowd. Um, and I think the Democrats could do even better on this. I, I think the Democratic problem in a lot of these red and purple states is more we run candidates like Amy McGrath that fit the district, but then they, but then in order to get 
online donations, like Amy McGrath, instead of running like a military person who's moderate, you know, runs indistinguishable from the national party, right? And that right. and that doesn't work, right? Now there are difference between Senate gov- elections and governor's elections, and I always think back to my favorite Sarah Focus Group ever was with Alabama and Georgia voters, where they were like the same voters were talking about how they liked Kemp and KIV or whatever, even though they weren't MAGA because they got things done, you know, they did whatever in their communities. And then when we got to the federal offices, they were like, you know, I like MTG and Matt Gates because they get things done, right? Like people, <laughs> the voters' conceptions of what a governor should do and what a federal person should do is there is very different. So I do think governor's races lend themselves to these types of candidacies a little bit more. But that doesn't mean that it wouldn't work in Senate races for more heterodox candidates to to try. And I, and I think that the Democrats really could use more of that. They have a couple right now with Tester and Manchin. But, you know, swing voters exist is my main takeaway of the Kentucky thing. I mean, Donald Trump lost two counties in Kentucky, two. He won 62-37 or something, I think. And, um, you know, Andy Bashir wins pretty comfortably last night. So a huge swing vote. And uh, and so, you know, persuasion matters. Yeah. Can I, I have a question for you, Tim, uh, yeah. because one of the things that Bashir did that Presley in Mississippi didn't do was he ran, he's ran as a pro-choice candidate, mm-hmm. right? He didn't try to be a pro-life candidate, even there in Kentucky, which Presley ran as a pro-life Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, which I think both you and I, or maybe all three of us might've said, that's a good move. Like we need more pro-life Democrats to kind of meet the moment. I'm not sure it didn't hurt Presley though, not to have, I think that abortion is one of these issues that if you make it a high salience issue for people, you pick up, especially at a local level where they are the decider about what's going to happen or the ballot initiative is the decider. Suddenly, as we saw in Ohio, you get tons of Republicans who vote for these things. And I think that Bashir running unabashedly on pro-choice actually probably helped him and didn't help Presley. What do you think? I do agree with that. I mean, again, now we're getting into really over-interpreting what's happening. You know, we have an incumbent governor, Bashir is incumbent, Tate is incumbent, right? It's Mississippi right. versus Kentucky, sure. which is different. I do One of the things I didn't get to in my article about Presley that I should have is, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was in order to kind of navigate this, right? Like, how do I win over enough Trump voters while also benefiting from what we were talking about earlier, which is the Democratic coalition's turnout advantages. You know, their answer to that was Medicaid, right? Like Medicaid access was the big kind of issue that they were running on. And I was just kind of, you know, the whole time I was like, I just, you know, there's this little doubt in my head that was like, is that enough actually? Is it, does there need to be something, does there need to be another fig leaf? And maybe that's simply six-week abortion access, right? Or something like very, you know what I mean? Some very, some pretty pro-life view, right? That was something, but something that people could grab onto. Like those, because Kentucky ads, the one ad with the young woman who got raped by her stepdad or whatever, and that was really powerful. And that's like a seven, you know, 80-20 issue, I think, even in Mississippi. Maybe, I mean, yeah. even if it's a 65-35 issue in Mississippi, right? Like, you know, maybe that maybe there's a way for Democrats to balance this more. When John Bell Edwards ran as a pro-life Democrat in Louisiana, it was in a pre-Dobbs era, right? And so he could be kind of pro-life in a hand-wavy way, you know, in a way that kind of like signals to the SOCONs, like, you can trust me. I'm, one, I'm not one of those bad Democrats. But maybe in a post-Dobbs world, 
I do agree that it might have helped Presley navigate that swing voter plus turnout advantage to have not been so hardline on that. All right, this segues something I want to talk about in, in a minute. But first, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, the holidays are coming up, and regardless of how much you plan and prepare to deal with all the craziness of shopping and cooking and family, it almost always ends up being a chaotic mess. True story. That's why adding therapy to your life can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. It can help you feel grounded amid all the craziness and even serve as something to look forward to. Therapy is a great way to work through your issues when the rest of your life doesn't give you the time to work on yourself. It isn't just for people who have been through some sort of traumatic experience. It can help you become the best version of yourself and deal with the world around you. And if you want to give therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option to try. It's completely online and was created to be convenient and flexible to your schedule. Just answer a brief questionnaire to be matched with a licensed therapist to start improving your mental health. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash the next level today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash the next level. You know I'm pro, very pro-therapy, and that is good. One other thing to think about, one other personal change I made about the holidays. Mm-hmm. It's a few years back, you know, right when I, when I, in my 20s, after I turned 21 and we're adults together, we were doing a lot of drinking at Thanksgiving. Mm. And that, that led to some questionable, you know, evenings. And so I just, I just say one change I've made to deal with the holiday stress is also just to kind of dial back the drinking a little bit. Mm. So I think therapy plus dialing back the drinking is a nice, just a little pro tip from me. Good to know. All right. So here's what I want to talk about. I, uh, I have a controversial take. Oh boy. Donald Trump is the Republican best positioned to run on handle abortion in the post-Dobbs era because he is like Nixon going to China. He can piss all over Pro-Life Incorporated. He will get a lot of credit for pro-life voters for appointing the justices who overturned Roe v. Wade. And then he can absolutely fuzz up what he wants to do by saying, What DeSantis did in Florida was terrible. You always need exceptions. And when I'm president, I'm going to bring everybody together in a room. And in 24 hours, we're going to have the best deal, the greatest deal, a deal that everyone in America is going to be happy with and that we can then put aside this this very difficult issue for forever. And that's all he'll say. And he would get away with saying nothing but that in the same way that he got away with saying that he would fix uh, the trade deficit and build the wall and balance the budget. And it'll be fine. And when you look at that New York Times poll, one of the very interesting deep questions down into it was they asked voters, is Donald Trump too conservative or not conservative enough? And something like 57 percent said that just ideologically, Trump was just right, not too conservative or too liberal, just right. I actually think he's kind of in the sweetest spot that exists for a Republican on abortion. Discuss. I agree with this. I My focus group pod, we were talking to uh, that same group that we did with Tim Ryan, actually, for last week's episode, where we were really talking about the moderate Democrats and how they win in red states. And we asked the Sherrod Brown Trump voters uh, if they thought Trump was extreme on abortion or moderate on abortion or somewhere in between. Everybody said moderate on abortion. 
So I agree. He reads as a moderate. And this is like kind of actually an old Tim point that I've really adopted because I think it's true about the extent to which Trump codes as a social moderate. Like there's a bunch of sound in there for a bunch of these voters being like, he probably paid for abortions. Like we know that he just did this because he feels like he needs to cozy up to the evangelicals. Like they've got his number. They know what he's doing. And so like they don't either people like accept that he'll do the thing for them. Like he put people on the courts tactically. But they also don't believe that he'll go so far in the other way because they read him as a social moderate. Here's what I think. This is like the challenge for Democrats. Is Democrats are going to have to, I think, weave a story about Donald Trump that's totally doable, though, which is that you cannot trust this person. He is only about himself. And he is the one, like, they're going to have to say, like, he's the one who made the Roe v. Wade repeal happen. Like, they're going to have to hang those three justices around him. It's going to be a little tougher because... It's not prospective, right? It's retrospective. You have to blame him for what he did, not what you think he will do. Uh, and that's always harder. You want to scare people about what he will do. But I think the, like, he is crazy and he will put other crazy people in charge who will do these extreme things. Like, I think you can get there. I just think it's not as straightforward and easy as with a DeSantis or somebody else. I basically agree with that with a caveat that another thing that the Democrats need to do that is a little harder than it would be for a DeSantis or whatever, but I think is doable, is pairing Trump with our new friend, MAGA, Mike Johnson. And um, and I think that this is where if we have liberal big donors listening, I think this could be a good project for an outside group right now, is I think that defining Mike Johnson, like Mike Johnson wants a federal abortion ban. The Republican Congress wants a federal abortion ban at I'd have to go back and look. He has three different proposals, but like that have basically no exceptions to them. And 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 I think that, you know, a concerted ad campaign that is if Republicans, you know, now you're going into Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin, you know, maybe there's a reason to feel we have a Democratic governor. There's nothing to worry about on the abortion issue, right? You need to go into Wisconsin and say to those voters, oh, there is something to worry. That if Trump and, and the Republicans control the House, if MAGA Mike Johnson is there, and you better believe that Trump will sign that bill. It's his judges. So, you know, figure out what, you got to test to figure out what the exact 30-second message is. But I, that's got to be, and I'm, I say fear-mongering, it's not, it's not really fear-mongering because I think it's a legitimate fear, but that, that has got to be what you have to do to raise the salience because I do agree that Trump personally doesn't code as a crazy on abortion and just doing the Trump did this to you. That'll work for some people, but that's not going to, that's not enough. There's got to be a prospective fear that he would do, that it would get worse, particularly in the swing states where the abortion laws haven't really changed that much. Can I just say on the abortion thing too, to Tim's point, there's going to be a lot of local people on these. Like, I think that Democrats are going to have to think Bigger and by bigger, I mean smaller and more localized about not just about building a bottom up coalition as opposed to a Biden down coalition, which is putting abortion everywhere you can. Right. Putting it on any ballot initiative, any place you can do it to help juice turn out. But like the problems that are showing up in the crosstabs of the polls around enthusiasm directly for Biden the one way you can offset it is by getting people out on these issues in a more local way so that they will do sort of the reverse of what the Trump people will do. Like they will tick the box for Biden while they're in there, but they will also vote abortion. Like this is how you get to young people. This is how you get people over whatever they're mad about with Biden and like actually have them turn out. All right. Uh, last thing about the elections, school boards, kind of fun to see that the Moms for Liberty 
not quite the electoral force that they had hoped to be, Tim? Owned. Owned. I, I, this is, talk about over-interpreting, but I, this is a trend that that is nationwide. Okay, in, in, in Loudoun County, which was in Virginia, the basis of this, you know, all of the Moms for Liberty, where this all started, uh, really, because it's a grass, it's, it's the D.C. suburbs, and this was a, you know, this was a grass tops thing funded by rich donors and, and put in place by uh, political strategists in Washington um, to get people mad. In Loudoun County, the school board flipped from, from Republican to Democrat. This happened in Bucks County, PA, which is a battleground county. Um, uh, the Dems took all five seats. They turned a six to three Republican majority into a six to three Democratic majority on the school board. In Iowa, Moms for Liberty chapters endorsed 13 candidates. They were one in 12. The one that won was in a rural district with, that has 1,000 students. Uh, in Douglas County, Colorado, uh, which is a pretty red county. It's ex-urban Denver. It's basically between Denver and Colorado Springs and uh, had been traditionally a Republican stronghold. Uh, that school board flipped and, and, and flipped back yesterday. There are some other examples of this. And, and uh, you know, my big takeaway is that essentially what yet happened here was parents were mad about the COVID restrictions. Maybe they weren't, you know, and, and I think that a lot of t- partisans, you know, did, didn't disaggregate these issues, right? And just like there are swing voters in Kentucky, there's swing voters on school board issues. And there are a lot of parents who were not happy about how schools were closed and school masking. I'm not generalizing. This is not every parent, but some that was, I think, a majority of parents that were upset about this. Um, and, and the Moms for Liberty started on this. And when I wrote about that candidate in Colorado, Heidi Ganahl, who ran for governor, this was how she kind of got activated, was into this Moms for Liberty group. And it just, you can just see it in the Facebook group when I was doing my research. It morphs from COVID to once the COVID thing is over, once schools are opened and the kids aren't being masked anymore, you know, these these groups, these grifts need to continue. And so they morph into the CRT, DEI, Gay Penguin Books, Drag Queen Story Hour. Child porn. Child right? porn, they're, they're, right? They're, like all this sort of stuff. And these people start taking over the school boards you know, on on the backs of of people being upset about about COVID, and and, and then they get into power, and they're like, I'm I'm going to ban, you know, whatever my Angelou, right? And, pe- and people are <laughs> can't like, have the color purple in our libraries. <laughs> yeah, and people are like, who are these fucking freaks? Like that are now in charge of the curriculum, and uh, and and there's been a huge pendulum swing back, and so that just brings a lot of joy to my heart. Sarah, any thoughts? No, I mean Tim covered that one well. Uh, it feels good. That one does feel good, and it happened all over the place. There was a lot of school boards swinging back. Um, and I think that, I guess, to extrapolate it up, it's a little bit too of an explainer on why DeSantis also sort of failure to launch. Mm-hmm. I think, like, this is just Good one point. of those things where people care about it some. <laughs> and, like, they might have a thing they're mad about here or there. But, like, the reaction of pulling books off shelves, the reaction just of being annoying Honestly, like, look, my kids need to go to school and like, I don't have time for all this stuff. And like, they're going to read what they're going to read. I read that book when I was there, like everyone settled down. It's just, it's a real overread. Like it's just the transgender stuff too. So like Danica Rome in Virginia last night is the, now the first sort of Southern transgender candidate to win at a state Senate level. She's been at the, she's been in the house for a while. And like, just like not the galvanizing issue people think it is like, yes. Can you get a applause line over like no boys and women's sports? You can, can you turn people out to vote on that? Can that be like the centerpiece of a campaign? I think it can't. And I think this is where DeSantis 
overread this moment. A lot of Republicans have overread this moment. I just love thinking about the parents in my life, like the normie parents who don't listen to this podcast, like my friends who are like, you know, like, yeah, I, I do think it's, you know, they, they didn't love having to do Zoom parenting. And then they were like, yeah, I do think it's pretty weird. Some Every once in a while, my kid gets a homework assignment and I'm like, we're going a little bit overboard here on some of the whatever, you know, whatever the woke thing is of the week, you know, like, do we really need to, you know, I remember going into look at schools for Toulouse and one of the schools was like, you know, we teach them about the Black Panthers in kindergarten. And I was like, is that really necessary? <laughs> I mean, Black Panther maybe, but the Black Panthers, I don't know. Do we, like, are we trying a little hard T'Challa? here? And right, and so, talking so about? You can see, you can see parent. I can see these parents in my life being like, yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe we do need to shake things up at the schools. Maybe they are going a little far to the left. And then all of a sudden these new parents come in and they're like, like it's like the church lady is deciding what books my kids can read. And I'm getting them and, and I'm like on the Facebook post. And I'm like, oh, my God. I was like, what did I do? No, get these people back. Whatever. The Black Panther homework assignment's fine. I'll deal with it. Not that big of a deal. All right. The uh, New York Times had a poll with Siena College that came out, uh, what, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, Monday, to make everybody lose their minds. I wrote about this. I, I don't expect you to have read it, Sarah. Um, 100% read it. 100% read it. I don't know if I read it, actually. I'm, I'm, I've been on the move mm. this week. Uh, where were you guys on this? Because I was not on, like, hair on fire. Um, but I thought, yeah, this is directionally consistent with everything we've been seeing for many weeks at this point. And like, does the poll have wonky things in it that I, you know, don't believe? Like, for instance, Trump probably won't get 22% of the African-American vote. Sure. But directionally, especially in the crosstabs with questions about age and mental competency and handling the economy, it lines up with everything else. Like, it may be an outlier, you know, a little bit on the final top line numbers. But this seems like basically where the race is. Correct? Incorrect, Sarah? Mm, I think it's sort of where it is. I just think where it is right this moment doesn't matter that much. Um, and I am in the everyone should chill out about this poll camp. Look, I just think the time to panic was a while ago. <laughs> and like, uh, we are where we are. Uh, look, I, I think, listen, I think it's really risky to run an 81-year-old who's one slip and fall away from a hip replacement surgery and making somebody who's uh, deeply unpopular the president uh, against like a surefire autocrat who's literally t planning right now how he's going to punish his enemies by wielding the DOJ against him if he gets back into office. So like, let's, yeah, like <laughs> we should, nobody should be sanguine about anything. I just think the like, even some of our close friends being like, he must step aside right now. Like this is the case of, what is it that, that meme of like Biden resigns, no idea what comes next, you know, then yeah. everything's great. Trump yeah. loses. It's then like, don't worry. Okay. Josh Shapiro is handed the, the presidential nomination. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer is his running mate and everything's fine. Guys, it's really silly. Like, here's the thing. You know what happens if Joe Biden steps down? Kamala I'll give Harris you one guess. Or Kamala Gavin Harris Newsom. is the nominee. Like, I don't know what people think. Yeah. You think you're going to start? A white guy is going to strip Kamala Harris of the first black woman vice president. A white guy is going to strip that from her in the next two months. Give me a break. Like, it's just not going to happen. Okay. Like, like he could now if, and, and like some of it is like timing, like if he does slip and fall right now, she will a become the sitting president, but they, they were, people would run against her. Like there would be an open primary that she would win that she would pro probably win as the sitting president. But let's say even she doesn't, it's still like, 
now you've run like this crazy, brutal prime. I, I mean, like I, there's just no good outcome here. So I think you're taking, and this is where JVL, I think you've been right in your triads, which of course I do read, uh, that Ew. like Joe Biden is your least bad, bad option here. And, uh, we need him to stay healthy and we need him to be okay. And those cross tabs are frightening, but that poll, let me tell you, this is my main takeaway. That poll is about Biden. Mm -hmm. The 2024 election is going to be about Trump. And those two things are really different. And you're going to hear me talk about this a lot, which is that you are not building a pro-Joe Biden coalition. You are building an anti-Trump coalition. It's why the no-label stuff is so bad, because they fracture the anti-Trump coalition, which is a dominant coalition. And they turn it into a pro-Joe Biden, pro-Donald Trump coalition, like coalitions battling themselves. That's bad. <laughs> That's really bad. Uh, because Joe Biden's not that popular. And this is this poll is about people registering their frustration with his age, about uh, young people being mad about uh, his remarks on Israel and him feeling out of touch and not connected to them. It is people expressing that they are not happy about the economy. Uh, all of those things. But 2024 will be about Donald Trump. And so like this poll just doesn't take a million things into account, even though those cross tabs are deeply frustrating. People have also just forgotten. I say this a lot too. People right now, Joe Biden's the president. They remember what they don't like about Joe Biden. They have completely forgotten what they don't like about Donald Trump. And by I don't like, I mean, hate, hate, hate about Donald Trump. And when he is back in their face, I'm not saying everything's solved. I'm just saying that is not what this poll is testing. Tim? I have nothing to add. That's right. I agree with all that. I, I guess really? my, my panic is slightly higher. Just like I panic about every poll and any poll that has Donald Trump at zero I'm and that, that he, where he's not at zero makes me panic. And like the whole <laughs> the whole prospect of all of this like makes me have bad feelings in my belly. But like I, I, I agree with Sarah's assessment of the state of play. All right. So I I kind of agree, but I do want to, to push back a little bit, which is that we have never had a race featuring two presidents in it. Two incumbents. Two incumbents, yeah. Two incumbents, basically. Yep. We've also never had a race where one of the candidates is going to have seven trial dates. True. During the during the election year. My concern is that races move as information sets in large, right? You learn more things about a candidate or, you know, another issue becomes more salient. You learn about it. There is no more information. Right. This is like we've we all know we we all lived through it. We lived through the four. We all had the same nervous breakdown as a country because of the the Trump administration. You know, the same every morning waking up to see that he start a war uh, going through a global pandemic in which the country had hundreds of thousands of excess deaths because of his handling of it. And like we we lived through it. We all know it. And it's people have the memory of a gnat. People have no memories. I don't. I barely remember COVID. What was COVID like? I, I I was thinking the other day. I was like, what was I doing all day during COVID? I, I I don't. People's memories are short, and and voters' memories are especially short. Politicians are. You just see this in the Donald Trump. Was throughout his whole time that he's been around. This this is infuriating. I'm not. I'm not. I don't like this, but this is just reality. His poll numbers go up and down. His favorability, you just watch it. Like when some, when for some reason Donald Trump's in everybody's face again, his numbers go down a couple points. This isn't every voter, right? But like it's a, it's a noticeable number of voters who change their view on Trump week to week based on how much he's annoying them. And like, and right now uh, he's not the he's not the center of attention. So I do think the information 
you know, arena will expand. Can I just make a pitch here for why I like focus groups instead of polls? Yeah. <laughs> because while the polls measure these snapshots of these specific questions, which agree, there's a lot of frustrating things in the specific questions. Like people view Biden as extremely old. Trump, who is three years younger, they do not think his age is a problem. Uh, people have, to Tim's point about memory, they have basically like memory hold the bad economy from Trump's mishandling of COVID and then put all the blame of the repercussions of COVID's economy yeah. on Joe Biden, right? Because he's the president and that's bad, right? That's not good. Not great. Uh, not great. And, and Joe Biden's got a tough pitch, right? Saying like, I kept us out of a recession and like the economy's not as bad as it could be uh, is not, that's not a great pitch. But the focus groups measure like the sense of urgency or the sense of top of mindedness of things, right? Because when you ask a question, somebody's like, oh, okay, here's how I feel about this thing. But the question is like, what's driving them emotionally at the time that they go into the ballot box? And the extent to which Trump will, I assume, have demonstrated a level of batshit craziness that will make Joe Biden look positively, I don't know, like he could do the New York Times alive. crossword puzzle in five minutes. I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Alive. Yeah. And look, it'll, some of that's going to depend on Joe Biden too. I just think like we can't see right now. We can know that the age is a problem and the age is really a problem, Absolutely. but he is up against a lunatic who we also know will not be able to hide that lunacy. And so like when the focus groups, let me just, if I can calm you with one anecdote, it is this, this happens all the time. You talk to a bunch of democratic voters and they are like, oh, Joe Biden's not really going to run again. Like, they still don't even know he's going to be, he's running, or like, he's going to be the person. And they hate it. They don't want him to be the nominee. They're worried. They think every time he talks, they get scared that he's going to fall off the stage or lose his train of thought or not be able to get the words out. Okay, that's what people say. They talk about being afraid for him. And a bunch of them are like, I don't even know if I'll vote. And then you're like, well, what if he's going to be against Trump? And everyone's like, well, that's not going to happen again. And you're like, yeah, let's just say Trump's the nominee. Going to be the nominee. Trump's the nominee. And everyone's like, oh, well, yeah, well, I got to vote. I got to get it. Can't have Trump be the nominee. So, like, you know, I just think that you, JV, if you got to listen to these voters to get that sense of how checked out they are, oh, they have not grokked that these two people are running again, that we are rerunning this election. And when they do... The hatred of Donald Trump will be there, and that will matter. There's also a whole new set of voters. Like COVID, there's a whole bunch of people who have died, and then there's a whole bunch of new people who are coming into the vote who've, like, had no experience with Donald Trump. Like, for all they know, this, like, guy is... But, like, they're going to get introduced to the real Donald Trump here. And I suspect they will not like him when they do. Just me. Okay. I got. We got to move on. I can't. I'm, like, I'm starting to, I'm starting to hyperventilate over here. We need to put a time clock on how long we can talk about. I was I was trying to make you feel better. It was no no no. I just the whole topic, like the whole like there's a poll where Donald Trump's beating Joe Biden. I can only do like eight minutes of that per per week. I just okay. uh, like, <laughs> I just need to ration it out. Let's move on. Kim Reynolds, the formerly popular governor of Iowa, has decided she is no longer neutral. She has endorsed Ron DeSantis. Really? For president? Wait a minute. Who did? Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa. Huh. <laughs> Did that really happen? I didn't see anything about this that is, this week. A lot of other stuff in the news, I guess. This is a real thing that happened. Oh, huh. Uh, she has endorsed the guy who is probably two weeks away from being third in Iowa. The guy who is simply roadkill, whose campaign is over except for the shouting. And it's interesting. I don't quite understand why she would 
do it because she's now marked her card against Trump. Fle- Go ahead, Tim. You I, didn't talk know, much last time. That was a bit I was doing, by the way. Uh, it got no news. Oh, okay. Like literally, there was no coverage of this. I just I, like you think we're in such a different world. You just think back to 2016, the Nikki Haley, Tim Scott endorsement of Marco obviously didn't. So this is right. It got the proportionate amount of news to how how newsworthy it was. But like back then, that was like wall to wall coverage, front page of papers, the picture of the three of them, mo- big momentum. And this happened, and it's like I, I wasn't even in the newspaper, and and like in the national newspapers, at my little hotel USA Today. Maybe I just didn't make it to page thirty six or whatever. But uh, and I'm sure at the local TV it was on. But like, there just is not a sense that this matters, right? Um, and I think that's right because it doesn't. And um, and that's a different world. Like the idea that the Iowa governor would endorse somebody. Why did she like, do that? In the old days, used to be just anyway. Um, I think that's very telling. Uh, state of play. She did it as a CYA. She doesn't like she doesn't like Donald Trump. These people don't like Donald Trump, and she doesn't want to. She wants to be able to say to her non-Trump friends in her social life, you know, like our buddy, her consultant, and like other people. She wants to say, "I did what I could." I endorsed Ron DeSantis. She wants to say to DeSantis and to the other people in her circle, in her ear, that know that it shouldn't be Trump. I did it. I, I endorsed Ron DeSantis. I did the thing I was supposed to do. I like Ron DeSantis. We have a relationship. I, I do think that's weird. I've never got to hang out with Ron DeSantis. Maybe he has another side of him. He shows behind the scenes. But uh, but I, I think that my understanding based on people that know Kim is that she does genuinely like him. And she's like – and so now she can say to her friend and to other people that hate Trump in her world, I did what I could. And then in four months when she endorses Donald Trump, she can say to all the MAGA voters and all the MAGA people in her life that – she was never anti-Trump. She was never hard on Trump, but uh, you know, she she was for him. She helped him. So it's just it's just a CYA move, is my assessment. I have a different take. Okay, great. Okay, so I think what's happening. So she had a chance to endorse Ron DeSantis. You're Tim's totally right. Everybody will tell you who knows him that knows that they're close, and she likes him, and she wanted to endorse DeSantis, which she could have done several months ago when the race was tighter, and where she declined though to endorse him over Trump because it's not really a thing like Tim said Iowa governors do. Here's why it happened though, in my opinion, is not because of Trump, but because of Nikki. And DeSantis is really close potentially to coming in third in Iowa. And if he comes in third in Iowa, his political career might effectively be over. And I think because they're friends, he went to her and said, I, I, you have to do this for me. Like, I think he let her off the first time because he thought he could maybe do it on his own. Now he's sure he can't, he might slip to third. And like, this is the one play he's got in Iowa to stay in the race. And I think he put the hard, hard sell on her. And then I think there's a little bit of Tim's stuff of like, that is what she wanted to do. But in like, so she just said, forget it, I'll, I'll do it. But it's too late. Look, she can do whatever she wants. But I really hope that Trump holds a grudge here. Because if he lets her off for this, I hope Donald Trump understands that he needs to make an example out of her and it shouldn't be good enough for, if any of the, the MAGA types listening to this, it shouldn't be good enough for her to just hop on board in four months MAGA when she listener. has to. Hello, hi, I, I, I hear you, I see you. He, he should exact a price for this and we should make sure that she gets primaried when she runs for the Senate seat in whenever, whenever that becomes available. And uh, and I hope she is primaried very hard for her very unfair and disloyal treatment of our great president, probably your favorite, <laughs> Donald Trump. I do not. I do not root for Donald Trump retribution or Donald Trump success. I will note this. 
even though the endorsement just happened, this has all been brewing, right? Like Trump's been crapping on her on Truth Social or whatever. Oh, yeah. And those morning consult governor polls that come out where you just where they do like a monthly check-in on every governor's rating. Kim is like at the bottom now. I don't I don't I don't remember if she was last, but she was near the bottom because there are some MAGA voters that are upset at her. Um, and, as they should uh, you know, be. I mean, she's still above. It's not like she's at 20% or something. But her numbers, you can see that there's been a meaningful decline in her numbers because there are MAGA voters in Iowa that are like, I'm mad at you for not getting on board. It's a cult. Hope there's more. Weird, weird, weird stuff happens in a cult. All right. We do have time. I thought we weren't going to be able to, but but here we are. We can talk about Peter Mayer. Meyer. Meyer. Who can say? Meyer? Nobody knows. No, How do you pronounce it? Impossible. Sure. Um, so uh, what do you guys think? I wrote a whole whole lot about this uh, the other day. Everybody seems to be, if I could just set this up. Uh, he did a local radio interview earlier this week in which he said, of course, he defended his vote to impeach Donald Trump, said that, of course, he would support the Republican nominee. So he voted to remove Trump from office and bar him from ever becoming president again. But of course, he is now happy to support making this man president again. That's not what freaked me out. What freaked me out was him in the middle of this interview saying that the things Joe Biden has done have been much worse and much more serious than the January 6th attempt to overthrow the American government. And I just listened to that. I'm just like, what the F? Hey, before we rant about Peter Meyer, can I point out, because me and Sarah both, all of us are very upset at Peter Meyer, so you're about to hear rage, like righteous rage happen, um, and I'll let Sarah take the first swing, and I'll kind of kick him while he's down. But before we get to that, can I just do one funny thing? Uh, when you said, I want to get to the last topic, we have one more topic, I was like, Wait a minute, I felt like we had two more topics on the show map. What was the other topic? And then I went and just looked at our little note, and it was, uh, there's, a debate, there's a debate tonight. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a debate, debate tonight. There's a debate tonight. There is Nobody a debate remembers. Tonight. I, if I, I, the only thing that anybody has said to me about the debate this week is, oh, wait, there's a debate this week. Uh, you know, like several people have been like, I'd forgotten about that. So... I just think that that's amusing. We don't really need to do anything on that, but it's like it goes. I would like to talk about the debate tonight. I'm doing the New York Times debate coverage tonight on where you rue their little writing thingies. Uh, And I have many thoughts about the debate tonight, except I agree. I've also seen a lot of people be like, oh, there's another debate tonight because Trump's going to be like down the road uh, counter programming again. So can we just do a little debate after we do Meyer? Sure. You've got to save Meyer for the end. If you want to do the debate, do it now. But Meyer is the, okay. is the cherry well, on top. Let's just do Sarah. Meyer is the I'm dessert. Here, my take on the debate is I've already given LOL that there's a debate tonight, and I, won't, I will be on an airplane home, and I won't be watching it. I want to hear your debate take so I can incorporate it into the Thursday night live stream that we do for members of Bulwark Plus. Ding, ding, ding. I don't know, guy. You guys don't think it is at all important tonight no. whether Ryan DeSantis finally like succumbs to Nikki Haley. Tonight's the night where people decide whether the Nikki momentum is real, and everybody should move. Uh, all the people who have uh, fantasies of somebody taking him on, who see the the narrow but thin squint you can see it path uh, for her to come in second in Iowa, second in New Hampshire, and then. I don't know what happens in South two, Carolina, two, but like one. you got to do two, two, one. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, she could put a fork into DeSantis. I don't know if you saw the story. There's a great story in uh, Financial Times about DeSantis's biggest donor, uh, who is now saying he's probably going to move to Trump 
because Trump's, he said something like Trump's the alpha dog and DeSantis is the food. <laughs> uh, Trump is the big dog and DeSantis is the food. He also, it's just like tossed in at the end that he uh, believes strongly in extraterrestrial life and also that human sentience lives on after death. Whatever. He's just like, he's, and he also, do, he's DeSantis' biggest donor because he found out someone else was going to give DeSantis 20 million. So he gave him 20 million and $5. So that he would be the biggest donor. So anyway, these people should be taxed at ninety percent. This is what, when I hear stories <laughs> like this. This is where I turn into Bernie. Go I hear full Bernie, right? Like that, yep. And I'm full Bernie. Like I just think that the Nikki. Hold, hold on, I have a question for you though about mm. Nikki. She doesn't need to kill DeSantis because she needs DeSantis in Iowa. She right? does. It's true. I, I she, mean, she she would like him to be third, but she needs him there, keeping Trump close. No, she does. Yeah. So she needs, here's the thing. The path for Nikki is pretty straightforward, <laughs> right? I got, you I got my pen and pad. Yeah. Just like, write this down, write, write this down. Pad. She needs Christy and Asa and Scott and all of them to drop out. Right. Cause those votes go to her. Uh, she, she has to be nice to them so that she doesn't alienate their people. Yeah. Like, I don't know what we're up you, from. We're up, okay. We've got Christy and Ace's votes. We've gone from seven to nine. All right. You're yeah. wrong. No, 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 no. They're doing better than that. Uh, no, I'm not Asa actually, but Christy's got, Christy's got a little more than that. Uh, and so she picks it up. She needs DeSantis to stay in, in Iowa, uh, but she needs to beat him in order to beat both her ex beat the expectations, right? That gets her momentum when she beats the expectations. It also splits uh, yeah, the, or at least DeSantis peels off, you know, that 10, 12% or whatever he's going to get of, uh, otherwise Trumpy voters. Cause it's true. If DeSantis drops out, his voters go to Trump. So, but she overperforms in Iowa. Okay. And then now these guys are out. She goes into New Hampshire. She goes into New Hampshire where Christie has 8% where the, the, and, and where all these unaffiliated independents can vote, Right. And so if they turn out at a much higher rate, she gets within, she gets, she runs a real close race with Trump, right? Maybe like 45, 37. 37? Yeah. She Everybody has to else win. is dropped, except it. Yeah, she has to, I, I, I have to push back on this. In our fantasy scenario, which is fantasy to begin with, <laughs> yeah. she has to win New Hampshire. Donald, if Donald Trump wins Iowa and New Hampshire, the race is over. Right. Nikki can't come in. You have not heard the last part of my plan. Then okay. Donald Trump going into South Carolina either <laughs> dies or goes to jail. Uh, even goes to jail is not, not a surefire thing. But my point is, is that it matters. And this is why it matters. Just this is my, this is my whatever creed occur. Nikki needs to be in second. If something terror, if something happens to Trump, I'm not rooting for this the way that Tim does. I, would like it though if Donald Trump were gone for some reason and that Nikki Haley were in the poll position. Okay, I, I just I do want to say I received a nice note from somebody who is out there and may even live in New Hampshire who wants hope for Nikki and was upset at some of my commentary mocking this. And I just I want everybody to be happy. If you want to have hope for Nikki, I want to have hope. And and I just I, I, this is just it, the the numbers aren't working for me. I took the notes and like the numbers just aren't there. Thirty seven, <laughs> like what thirty seven? I like where from who? I, I you know I mean, you just look back at the twenty unaffiliated independents who are look not back at the twenty sixteen yeah. primary, and it's like Kasich had seventeen or something, and Marco yeah. But had if you eight. add up case, but if you add up Kasich, Marco, Christie, and, and Jeb. Jeb. 
you Maybe run you run about you run about even with Trump in New Hampshire. No, okay. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe Maybe, maybe hope dies last, as they say. I will say, I, I went to the, a Nikki event at at a venue where where we had John Huntsman and Jeb events, same venue, Town Hall in New Hampshire, and it was like wasn't even full. Like the upstairs of the balcony wasn't full. I know you can't judge these things, but I just if, if the momentum really was real, you could feel it in some way. I'm not saying you crowd yeah. size the matter. Joe Biden won with small crowds, but you could feel it. And, you know, I sent a picture of it to one of my buddies who was like, I was at a T-Paw event in 2011 <laughs> that had a bigger crowd than that. Um, and it's just... That's I just, Tim anyway, Pawlenty for just you not it. oh, Maybe it'll happen at tonight's debate that no one's going to watch. So, anyway. I'm, I'm sorry I derailed us from Peter Meyer. I, I did Peter think it was funny that we forgot, though. Meyer? Mayer? Who can say? Again, nobody knows how you say his name. Uh, I go to... I Sarah? I'm short. I'm short on this one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just nothing. This is the one. These are the ones that make me the saddest because he is going to trade away uh, what he had of his integrity, which he um, demonstrated when he voted to impeach Donald Trump and then lost his seat over it. I think he must have gotten pissed at Dems for running against him uh, or for helping out his primary opponent. Uh and has decided now that, you know, he's he's using that as a justification to to be mad and and uh, cuddle up. He doesn't to Trump seem in this to be way. pissed off at the Republicans who wanted to murder him, though. No, that's right. It's very no, that's strange. Right. It's very he strange. People just... who want to murder him. He can forgive and look past that. But the people who ran some some attack ads helping his primary opponent, that is the sin that would. What I don't even. This? Yeah, I don't even have to be that mad at him, though, because and I'll let Tim kick him just because, like, this isn't going to work. Like he is uh, not going to win the Republican primary uh, in Michigan because MAGA voters will not vote for somebody who voted to impeach him. I don't know if people realize this. Everybody who voted to impeach Trump is gone. They lost. And so like he already I watched him already kind of try to change his tune during the last primary. Didn't work for him then. Then it's not going to work for him now. And the only thing is he's going to wake up one day and realize he traded his soul and got nothing in return. And I'm sad for him. Here is why I'm angry, though, Sarah, before we get to Tim. It's because guys like Pete Mayer uh, doing this thing where they then uh, endorse Trump anyway, what that is is they are contributing to the permission structure for the marginal normie Republicans to pull the lever for Trump anyway. And they're doing it even while the MAGA guys are destroying their careers. And this is what I don't understand. Just on, just on the most, you know, on the grounds of spite, he ought to be anti-MAGA and anti-Trump and be like, you know what? I'm going to vote for Joe Biden with a song in my heart because these assholes destroyed my career, right? I mean, you could, you could, why not do that? But they, they, it's this weird, I don't know if it's a DS thing or if this is, if this is the way it looks. Never mind. Um, I I don't want you to blush. I don't, it's like, in the midst of revolutions, when the you know the the dictator goes and decides that the guy who was lieutenant of the secret police is now an enemy of the state, the guy who is, was the lieutenant is as he's being dragged away. Instead of saying "f you," you know, Mister Chuchashu, he's like he's screaming, "But I was loyal to the cause, and I remain loyal to the cause." You know, and I like why? What is wrong with them that they don't? Uh, see the people who hate them and want them dead and don't want them in their party, why do they see those people as their allies and not their enemies? 
I'm going to start by saying I appreciate Pete Myers' impeachment vote and his service to our military. True. Um, but I am not sad for him. I'm filled with the rage of a thousand sons, fiery rage of a thousand sons, and this fucking entitled little rich kid brat who thinks that he deserves to be in Congress or deserves to be in the fucking Senate because he can spend daddy's money on a fucking campaign or granddaddy's money um, is like absurd. And, and the fact that he is just so full of resentment, it's like thing that bothers me about people like the most, like the one trait that I really cannot take is people that have good lives who are successful who are, for whatever reason, so embittered and filled with resentment that it didn't go exactly as they planned. Like, you poor little baby, Peter Meyer, you were supposed to be in Congress. You were supposed to be able to get to be in Congress because you have a trust fund. And it's like, no, you're not entitled to that. You have a great life. You could do whatever you want. You could go start a charity. You could just build a big house on the beach. You could sleep with broads. You could have a fulfilling life and have a family and have kids and do that. You could be on boards. Like, you have a million things that you could do. You are not entitled to be in the Congress, okay? You did the right thing one time, and because you were not then exalted onto high by the, like, what, Democrats were supposed to exalt you, and and Democrats were supposed to give you, like, grant you that, your congressional seat in in perpetuity because you had one good vote, I, I, I just... Come on. Like the fact that you can just see it in this interview, how angry he is that the Democrats ran that, that the Democrats ran some ads, you know, for John Gibbs in a primary that that worked, by the way. Okay. That the, the I was against that ad campaign on principle, but like it worked. Welcome to the fucking big leagues. The Democrats have that seat now. They didn't get Also, the do seat. you know who didn't defend him and help him during that primary campaign? Anybody in the Republican Party. Certainly not Donald Trump. <laughs> Certainly not Donald Trump. Not Kevin McCarthy. Sent a mob to kill you. Donald Trump sent a mob to fucking kill you. And you're so mad that you lost your congressional seat to the Democrats who, who, you know, who outmaneuvered you. And by the way, you didn't lose it to the Democrats. You lost your seat to a bunch of MAGA crazies within your own party before you lost it to the Democrats. But you lost your seat. But you're so mad, you blame the Democrats for the fact that you lost your seat, that now, out of some like weird, spiteful revenge, you're like, I'm going to run for Senate in a hopelessly quixotic campaign, and 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 the whole basis of this is going to be like spite at never-Trumpers and spite at Democrats, and I'm going to talk about how Joe Biden is far, far worse than Donald Trump, and do exactly what you're saying, JVL, give people permission to say, okay, well, maybe maybe that's right. Maybe John, maybe Donald Trump isn't as bad as Joe Biden. Maybe I should. I mean, if the guy that almost got fucking killed by Donald Trump's uh, actions thinks that Donald Trump is better than Joe Biden, maybe he is better than Joe Biden. Like you're you're per, you're participating in that, totally undermining ev- all of the good that came from your vote, like just out of this petty resentment, not out of any actual principle. I just like the whole thing is 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 preposterous. And it's fucking maddening. And I get way more pissed at people like that than I do at like misguided crazies like Lauren Boebert. So there's there's one deeper point here, though, which is, and I, I did tease this out a little bit. Peter Mayer's worldview clearly is Republican voters are just a bunch of animals who do what they do. And you can't ask for anything more from them. You can't expect them to do the right thing or to understand anything. The only people who are rational and who can be expected to do that are Democrats. And the fact that the Democrats knew better and did this to me is why I hold them accountable for it 
And I don't hold the Republican voters accountable because, like, you know, look, they are what they are. I mean, isn't that the actual message of this? Well, yeah, maybe. And, I mean, and, and also, also, as a factual matter, he may be right. They're in his class, by the way. Again, this goes all goes back to resentment. Like, again, he's a rich kid that went to fancy schools. He also served in the military, which I appreciate. And I do appreciate his service. But, like, the people in his social class are Democrats, right? And so he does hold them to a higher standard. He's like, he looks at the like Republican fucking Neanderthals who are like throwing poop, smearing poop on the wall of the Capitol, right? And like calling death threats in. He's not mad at them, right? He's mad at like the, the it's like a class betrayal thing that he feels mad about. He feels like he was betrayed by his own people. And, um, and, and so like, that's literally what this is all about. And, and then I guess Afghanistan, I get it. I get it. I, I also thought Afghanistan was bad, but like, come on. So like the whole thing is Donald Trump wanted to fucking, leave Afghanistan. It was Donald Trump's plan to leave Donald Afghanistan. Donald Trump is the okay, so one who set this all in motion. Don't try, right? to, Joe Biden, don't try yeah, to give exactly. me this, oh, Afghanistan is the reason why Joe Biden's way worse than Donald Trump. If Nikki Haley was the other candidate, okay, great. Go, run for Senate, be for Nikki Haley. Awesome. It's She's not. It's Donald Trump, the guy that, that resulted in your death threats, that set, the, that set the Afghanistan thing in motion, that tried to end our democracy. You're going to vote for fucking Donald Trump. Fuck you. All right. No one's going to top that. Guys, good show. Very long show, but I let you have it anyway. I let you have the long show that you people always tell me you want. There you go. Happy holidays to you. Uh, Tim, Sarah, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Tim, amazing interview with Tom Arnold last Sunday. Um, Absolutely astonishing. Anybody who hasn't listened to it should 100% run to it. It's so good. Uh, hit the subscribe, hit the likes, come over to Bulwark and sign up and get our get our email. Get Charlie's email every day for free with no ads in it or anything. Get my email sometimes for you to just sit and ignore your inbox. You don't even have to read it. You can consume it just the way Sarah, Sarah Longwell, our publisher, consumes it. It's fantastic. We'll see you on Sunday.